Chapter Fourteen of Dwellers in the Hills by Melville Davison Post. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Fourteen, relating to the first liars. The autumn in the hills is but the afternoon of summer. The hour of the new guest is not yet. Still the heat lies on the earth and runs bubbling in the water. The little maid trots barefoot and the urchin goes a-swimming in the elm-hole by the corner of the meadow. Still the tender grass grows at the roots of the dead crop, and the little purple flowers dimple naked in the brown pasture. Still that pied piper of Hamelin, the everlasting pan, flutes in the deep hollows, squatted down in the broom-sedge, and still the world is a land of unending summer, of unfading flowers, of undying youthfulness. Only for an hour or so, far in the deep night, does the distant breath of the Frost King come to haunt the land, and then when the sun flings away his white Samite coverlid, it is summer again, with the earth shining and the water warm. It was hot mid-morning when the long drove trailed down toward Horton's Ferry. The sweat was beginning to trickle in the hair of the fat cattle. Here and there through the herd a quarrelsome fellow was beginning to show the effect of his fighting and the heat. His eyes were a bit watery in his dusty face, and the tip of his tongue was slipping at his lips. The warm sun was getting into the backs of all of us. I had stripped off my coat and carried it thrown across the horn of the saddle. Ump rode a mile away, in the far front of the drove, keeping a few steers moving in the lead while Judd shifted his horse up and down the long line. I followed on El Mahdi, lolling in the big saddle. Far away I could hear Ump shout at some perverse steer climbing up against the high road-bank, or the crack of Judd's driving-whip drifted back to me. The lagging bullocks settled to the rear, and El Mahdi held them to the mark, like a good sergeant of raw militiamen. Ump and his leaders had reached the open common by the ferry when the long line stopped, and I saw Judd go to the front in a gallop. I waited for the column to go on, but it did not, and I began to drive the cattle in, bunching them up in the road. Presently Judd came down into the turnpike and shouted to me. Then he dismounted, tied the reins around the horn of the saddle, and started the cardinal to the rear. The trained cattle horse knew very well what he was to do, and picked his way through the steers until he reached me. Then he turned in the road, and I left him there to watch the drove, while I went to the front to see what the trouble was. Both the cardinal and the Bay Eagle were trained to this business, and guarded the rear of the drove like dogs. The rider might lounge under a shade-tree, kicking up his heels to the sky. For this work El Mahdi was a trifle too eccentric, and we did not trust him. Judd was gone when I reached the little bank, where the road turned into the common of the ferry, I passed through the van of the cattle as they stood idly on the sodden open, swinging their long tails with comfortable indifference. Then I came out to where I could see the bank of the river, and the blue smoke trailing up from the chimney of the ferryman. Facing the north at the front door of this house, Ump sat on the Bay Eagle, the reins down on the mare's back, and the hunchback's long hands crossed and resting on the horn of his saddle. The attitude of the man struck me with a great fear. About him lurked the atmosphere of overwhelming defeat. 
the shadow of some mighty disaster loomed over against the almost tragic figure of the motionless hunchback, sitting a horse of stone. In such moments of strain the human mind has a mysterious capacity for trifles. I noticed a wisp of dry sedge-bloom clinging to the man's shoulder, a flimsy detail of the great picture. The hunchback made no sign when I rode by him. What he had seen was still there beyond him in the sun. I had eyes. I could see. On a stone by the landing sat one of the ferrymen, Dan'l, his hands in the pockets of his brown homespun coat. Neither Judd nor the other brother was anywhere in sight. I looked up at the steel cable above the man's head. It ended twenty feet away in the water. I rose in the stirrups and searched the bank for the boat. It was gone. The valley river ran full, a quarter of a mile of glistening yellow water, and no way across it but the way of the bass or the way of the heron. The human mind has caves into which it can crawl, pits where it hides itself when it wishes to escape, dark holes leading back under the crags of the abyss. This explained the dazed appearance of one who was told suddenly of a disaster. The mind has crawled up into these fastnesses. For the time, the distance is great between it and the body of the man through which it manifests itself. An enemy has threatened, and the master has gone to hide himself. The man is a coward, always afraid of the not-mind. Like the frightened child, it must be given time to creep back to its abandoned plaything. The full magnitude of this disaster to the fairy came slowly, as when one smooths out a crumpled map. In the great stillness I heard a wren twittering in the reeds along the bank, and I noted a green grasshopper, caught in the current, swimming for his life. Then I saw it all to the very end, and I sickened. I felt as though some painless accident had removed all the portion of my body below the diaphragm. It was physical sickness. I doubled over and linked my fingers across my stomach, my head down almost to the saddle. Marks and his crew had done the work for us. The cable had been cut, and the boat had drifted away or been stolen. We were on the south side of the valley river, twirling our thumbs, while they rode back to their master with the answer, It is done. Then, suddenly, I recalled the singing which I had heard in the night. It was no dream, that singing. Peppers had stolen the boat and floated it away with the current. I could see Cynthia laughing with Hawk Roof. Then I saw Ward, and the sickness left me, and the tears came streaming through my eyes. I put my arms down on the horn of the saddle and sobbed. Remember, I was only a boy. Men old in the business of life become accustomed to loss, accustomed to fingers snatching away the gain which they have almost reached up to, accustomed to the staggering blow delivered by the unforeseen. Like gamblers, they learn finally to look with indifference on the mask that may disguise the angel or the death, on the curtain of tomorrow that may cover an Eldorado or a tomb. They come to see that the eternal forces are unknowable, following laws unknowable, from the seed sprouting in a handful of earth to the answer of a woman, I do not love you. But the child does not know the truth. He has been lied to from the cradle. 
taught a set of catchwords, a set of wise saws, a set of moral rules, logarithms by which the equation of life could be worked out, all arbitrary and many grossly erroneous. He is led to believe that his father or the schoolmaster has grasped the scheme of human life and can explain it to him. The nurse says it will come out all right, as though the unforeseen could be determined by a secret in her possession. He is satisfied that these wise ones know. Then he meets the eternal forces, an event threatens, he marshals his catchwords, his wise saws, his moral rules, and they fail him. He retires, beaten, as the magicians of Egypt retired before God. His father, or the nurse, or the schoolmaster explains with some outlandish fairy story, shifts the catchword, or the saw, or the rule, as a physician shifts the prescription of a consumptive, and returns him to the tremendous reality. Again he spreads his hands and cries the sacred formula. The eternal forces advance. He stands fast and is flung bleeding to the wall, or he flees. Afraid, hidden in some cranny of the rocks, nursing his hurt, the child begins to see the truth. This passing from the world as it should be to the world as it is nearly kills him. It is like the riving of timber. Presently I heard Judd speak to me from behind El Mahdi. The full strong voice of the man was like a dash of cold water in the face. I sat up. He bade me to join Ump and himself to discuss what should be done, then turned around and went back to the house. I slipped down from El Mahdi, washed my face in the river, and wiped it dry on my sleeve. Then I climbed into the saddle and rode back to where the little group stood before the door. There were Ump and Judd, the two ferrymen and their ancient mother. Dana was describing the catastrophe in a low voice, as one might describe the last illness of a man whose corpse was waiting in his house for burial. We set twigs over pretty late. Then there wasn't anybody else. So we tied up the boat and went to bed. Mother sleeps by the fire. Mother has rheumatiz, so she don't sleep very sound. About midnight she called me. She was sitting up in the bed with a shawl around her. Dan'l, she said, there's something lumbering around the boat. Hadn't you better slip down and see about it? I told mother I reckoned it was a swimming tree. Sometimes they hit against the boat when they go down. Then I waked Mart up and told him mother had heard something bumpin' against the boat and I reckoned it was a swimming tree. Mart was sleepy, and he said he reckoned it was. Then I turned over and went to sleep again. When we got out this morning, the cable was broke loose, and the boat swum off. We s'pose, here he paused and looked gravely at his brother, who as gravely nodded his head, we s'pose the cable pulled loose somehow. It was cut in two, said I. The ferryman screwed his head around on his neck as though he had not heard correctly. Did you say cut in two? he repeated. Yes, I said, cut in two. That cable was cut in two. The man began to rub his chin with his hand. I reckon not, Quiller, he said. I reckon there ain't no person honor enough to do that. It might be, piped the old woman, 
thrusting in. There's been sitch, once it, a long time ago, when your pap was a boy, goin' girlin' some, about when he begun a settin' up to me. A feller stole the ferry boat, but he was a terrible gallus feller. Granny, said Ump, the devil ain't dead by a long shot. There is rapscallions lickin' plates over the valley that's meaner than garbroth. They could show the old scratch tricks that would make his eyes stick out so you could knock em off with a clapboard. Dan'l protested. He pointed out that neither he nor his brother had ever done any man a wrong, and therefore no man would wrong them. It was one of those rules which children discover are strangely not true. He said the fairy was for the good of all, and therefore all would preserve rather than injure that good. Another wise saw verbally sound but going to pieces under the pitiless logic of fact this man who had spent his life as one might spend it grinding at a mill now when he came to reckon with the natures of men did it like a child um cut him short dan'l he said you talk like a meetin house old christian cut that cable with a cold chisel and black mallin or peppers stole your boat they have nothing against you. They wanted to stop us from crossing with these cattle, and I guess they've done it. Then he turned to me. The vaporings of the ferryman were of no importance. Quiller, he said, we're in the devil's own mess. What do you think about it? I don't know, I answered. What does Judd think? The face of the giant was covered with perspiration standing in beads. He clenched his hands and clamped his wet fists against the legs of his breeches. "'God damn him, he said. It was the most terrible oath that I have ever heard. Then he closed his mouth. Ump looked at the man, then rode his horse over to me. "'Quiller,' he said slowly, "'we're gone up unless we can swim the drove across, and it's a hell of a risky job. Do you see that big eddy?' and he pointed his finger to the middle of the valley river, where the yellow water swung around in a great circle. If the steers bunch up in that hole, they'll drown like rats. I looked at the wide water, and it scared me. Ump, I said, how long could they stay in there without giving out? They wouldn't give out, replied the hunchback, if we could keep em above the eddy. A steer can swim as long as a horse if he ain't crowded. If we could keep em goin' in a long loop, we could cross em. If they bunched up, it would be good-bye, Pap. Do you think they would grind in there if they happened to bunch? said I. To kindlin', responded Ump, if they ever got at it good. Ump, I said, looking him squarely in the face. I'm afraid of it. The man chewed his thin upper lip. So am I, Quiller, he answered. But there ain't much choosin'. We either swim em, or we go up the spout. Well, said I, do we do it, or not do it? The hunchback studied the river. Quiller, he said finally, if we knowed about that current, I cut him short. I'll find out about the current, I said. Then I threw away my hat, pitched my coat down on the sod, and gathered up my bridle reins. Wait! cried the hunchback. Then he turned to Judd. Wash your face in the tub by the spout yonder, and bring up your horse. Take Dan'l with you. 
Open Tolbert's fence, and put the cattle in the grove. Then come back here. Quiller's the lightest. He's going to try the current. Then he swung around and clucked to the mare. I spoke to El Mahdi, and we rode down to the river. On the bank Ump stopped, and looked out across the water, deep, wide, muddy. Then he turned to me. Hadn't you better ride the Bay Eagle, he said. She knows more in a minute than any horse that was ever born. What's wrong with El Mahdi? I said, piqued a little. He ain't steady, responded the hunchback, and he knows more tricks than a meetin'-house rat. Sometimes he swims, and sometimes he don't swim, and you can't tell till you get in. This, said I, is a case of have to. If he don't like the top, there's ground at the bottom. Then I kicked the false prophet in the flanks with my heels. The horse was standing on the edge of the sodded bank. When my heels struck him, he jumped as far as he could into the river. There was a great splash. The horse dropped like a stone, his legs stiff as ramrods, his neck doubled under and his back bowed. It was a bucking jump and meant going to the bottom. I felt the water rush up and close over my head. I clamped my legs to the horse, held my breath, and went down in the saddle. I thought we should never reach the bottom of that river. The current tugged, trying to pull me loose and whirl me away. The horse under me felt like a millstone. The weight of water pressed like some tremendous thumb. Then we struck the rock bottom and began to come up. The sensation changed. I seemed now to be thrust violently from below against a weight pressing on my head, as though I were being used by some force under me to drive the containing cork out of the bottle in which we were enclosed. I began to be troubled for breath. My head rang. The distance seemed interminable. Then we popped up on top of the river, and I filled with the blessed air to the very tips of my fingers. The horse blew the water out of his nostrils and doubled his long legs. I thought he was going down again, and, seizing the top of the saddle-horn, I loosed my feet in the stirrups. If El Mahdi returned to the deeps of that river, he would go by himself. He stretched out his gray neck, sank until the water came running over the saddle, and then began to swim with long, graceful strokes of his iron legs, as though it were the easiest thing in the world. End of chapter 14